Welcome to Air Crew Interview. I'm Mike Newman, your host, and this is part two of our interview with former Harrier F-16 and F-35 pilot Hugh Nichols. In this episode, Hugh chats about the F-35 and he describes what the aircraft was like to fly, the cockpit, of course the helmet, and some great personal stories. He also shares a great story about his time featuring on Michael McIntyre's big show that featured a text from Carol Vorderman, and he wraps up by answering some personal questions. If you enjoy our videos and podcasts and would like us to continue putting out regular quality content, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview where you can donate monthly and in return you will get rewards ranging from early interview viewings, bonus clips, credited as a producer and much more. Thank you and enjoy. I got kind of lucky again really. I was kind of right place, right time as we were... We were just starting up, well, we being the Royal Air Force, Royal Navy, UK MOD, we're just starting up the F-35, um, you know, not the, not the project, because of course we've been in the project for years, but really just starting to actually physically get the airplanes and start to think about training pilots on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I guess my previous Harrier experience with the kind of Stovall, V-Stoll, all of that kind of stuff, and then also my um, experience with the F-16, the US, uh, the the seed roll, all that kind of stuff, you know, played to my favour. And uh, I was lucky enough to go down to Eglin to be on, you know, the first kind of cadre of people that got trained on the F-35B, which was fantastic. Yeah, so. absolutely. And so can you talk us through some of your ground training on the F-35? And it must have been like a massive <laughs> leap, you know, coming from the F-16 to, you know, this, you know, fifth generation fighter. Yeah, um, it is a huge leap. It's surprisingly less of a leap than you think. I mean, it is a huge leap in technology mm-hmm. in how difficult it is to fly or, you know, the acceptance that maybe it's a really incredibly complicated airplane. It, it really isn't, and, it, and it's for good reason, you know. So, you know, they designed the airplane to be incredibly easy to fly because you don't want to be thinking about flying it. You want to be thinking about fighting it, you know. And then, you know, if you think to F-16 days, I mean, certainly early on in F- when, I, when I was initially flying it, and this kind of, improved over the, the time that I flew it. But I mean you're in there and you're physically digging around with a little, you know, a little cursor that's kind of, you know, like two little lines like this. And you're digging around on a radar scope to find the little return that might be there and it might not be there when it comes when the radar kind of swings back again. Whereas F-35, you're just sitting there looking at a big map. And if a little white square pops up, then one of the many sensors has decided it's a square that you can shoot and you shoot it. So I mean, yes, it's a difference in you know step change and a difference in the the way that you think about operating it but actually in physical left right up down and pressing buttons it's actually can probably considerably easier mm-hmm. uh, and the about ground training there right so um this i mean it's kind of similar in in, in many ways to every other airplane and i mean I'm, I'm in the civilian world now and it doesn't change you go to ground school you go fly sims and then you go fly the airplane I mean, it's kind of that simple and f-35 certainly when I got into it, was um, was so new that actually the course was still being evolved. So actually we did we did a kind of, I think they called it a small group tryout or something like that. They were basically kind of just getting to the stage where they thought they had all the, all the courseware and all of the presentations kind of where they wanted them, but they weren't quite sure. So they were kind of using us as guinea pigs, if you like, to make sure that we they had their stuff in the right place, them being Lockheed Martin and the ground school instructors. Um, so we went through probably a couple of weeks worth of ground school again. And then the one thing you do in the F-35, of course, for good reason, in that there's no two-seaters, is a whole load of sims. So I think there's like 
I want to say there was 15 or 16 simulators before you even touch the airplane. Bloody hell. So that was definitely a pretty big burden. But then, of course, if you can't fly in another one with someone else, then you want that guy to be pretty good by the time he touches it, <laughs> especially when it's – at that point, I think they were in the $150, $160 million you know, regime. So, you know, you certainly don't want someone that doesn't know what they're doing jumping in that thing. So similar yeah. ground training, but, you know, subtly different, I guess. So for like maybe you can explain for our viewers like what was the main role of the F thirty five at this point when you were joining was it basically a multi role aircraft or was it air to air air to ground? Um, to be brutally honest, the role of the F thirty five when I was starting to fly it then was just to go fly. Right. It was nothing more than that. Okay. Uh, so they, I mean, and there's you know there's articles you know that would fill the internet about this but really the, what, what they what they assumed was in, in the development of the, of the airplane was called to, we decided to do what we call concurrent development so they're still developing certain parts of the aircraft while we're flying early software models of that that side of it if you like and that, that happens in all airplanes but we, we rolled that out a lot earlier in f-35 um, and so as a result of that i mean we had and i mean this was you know not necessarily by design but it wasn't unexpected we'd have many days where airplanes wouldn't have sensors working you know the radar wasn't working but they needed the thing to go fly because they needed the data to come off it to say well you know why didn't this work why didn't that work so a lot of it was actually kind of almost test not test piloting because that was definitely not our, our job but kind of almost you know just going out there and shaking it down for a long time mm-hmm. and we did that for quite a while um we also were training pilots at the same time, but you know when you can, when the, the envelope was very restricted because they hadn't tested all of the you know the corners of the envelope you want to be up here. If they've only tested these bits down here, you can only really operate in these bits down here. And when that's, I think I want to say it was three G, maybe three and a half when we first got the airplane, um, and you know very restricted, very very kind of basic envelope. You really can't train someone very much. It's really a matter of going, getting hours under your belt, getting the squadron going, getting the maintenance going, and then kind of waiting for the envelope to open up. So mm-hmm. certainly initially that was frustrating, but you know it wasn't it wasn't unexpected. It was just frustrating. And let's talk about your first flight. What was that like, Hugh? <laughs> um, that was probably it's kind of ironic because it's you know the more first flights you do, you would argue that you're more experienced and therefore it would bother you less, I guess, but. I guess this one's different because a you don't have a two seater to go in because you know every other airplane you've got another person with you and at least you know you've got that in the back of your mind to oh he he can deal with this if it all goes horribly wrong kind of thing um, and then b none of the other airplanes cost anywhere near that much and I definitely remember kind of rolling onto the runway and thinking there's a lot of money under me here you know like I really don't want to screw this up yeah. um, so it was definitely mind focusing but that said the simulator. Uh, is was I'm, I'm sure still is phenomenal. Like the, the graphics, the immersion, the way that it kind of trains you is fantastic. It, I mean, it genuinely couldn't be much better. And as a result of that, really, the only thing that you're getting in the co- in the aircraft that you don't get in the simulator is you know the 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 sounds, the smells, the you know the, the you know the slight rumbling when the thing taxis, you know those kind of things. Because the simulators are very you know. Um, sterile world, if you like. Um, and it, you know, you can you can kind of game the game a little bit in the simulator. Whereas the real world, the jet goes wrong. You know, the air traffic control aren't perfect. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's definitely some some differences there. But really, by the time you get in there and press press buttons, yeah, 
it just feels like a sin. And we saw that throughout the the whole evolution that I was on the force. Um, to the extent that you know you put young, I mean, we got to the stage where we put an issue pilots right from training into the airplane, and you wouldn't think twice about the first day that they, they flew the thing. You genuinely had no concerns about it at all, which is okay. amazing. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And was like obviously like our views are going to know is the A, B, and C. Was there a difference? Obviously, the B is the uh, V-stall uh, 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 variant, but was there a difference in the cockpit between each type? No. No? No, it wasn't. No, cockpits, as far as I can remember, I'm trying to think now. Yeah, cockpits, identical. Wow, um, okay. There'll be, some button, there'll be some different buttons, of course, you know, you have, you know, I guess wing fold buttons on the on the sea, you know, various other things like that, but I mean, there was, you know, if you if you sat in it, short of you know, looking at the, the physical dimensions of the aeroplane behind you, I don't think you'd know the difference by looking ahead. The only other thing that tell you is the stores page and the fuel page, I guess, because they were different. But I think actually looking forwards into the into the into the glass is what we used to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, you you wouldn't tell. So let's talk about a bit about F thirty five training. Was it different coming from the F sixteen and the Harrier? Like, how did you? What what, what kind of missions were you training for? Um, are you talking about when I trained or when we were training? When you trained, yeah. Okay. Um, no, I mean, I think I was probably lucky in the respect that because I'd come from a, a U.S. unit. Yeah. I'd, I'd driven seven hours down the road from from South Carolina to Florida. Yeah. It was it was kind of it was almost you know just like home to me. I think it would have been more foreign for me to go to the UK and go and fly something else. To be totally honest. Um, so that wasn't too different. Um, and then. The, the kind of training we're doing, I mean, like, like I kind of alluded to before, it was very untactical at that point. And that was, once again, by design. I mean, don't, don't think I'm, I'm throwing spears here. It was by design that it was untactical because really there was an, there was a, an admission that, that the airplane wasn't ready to go out there and do tactical things at that point. So really we were taught how to take off, how to land, how to, you know, operate the airplane, how to, how to um, fix the airplane if things went wrong, how to, um, you know, fly the airplane if the engine quit, you know, those kind of things, you know, those very important, you know, in, inherent skills. But much more than that was really on the job learning for us. Down the line, and if you went and did the course now, very different beast. I mean, those guys are coming out. And I mean, I certainly, you know, as I was leaving 18 months ago, the guys coming out of the schoolhouse were tactically very sound. It had a great grounding and all that kind of stuff. The simulator was up and running to the extent that it was, you know, teaching them the right things at the right time. So, you know, it changed hugely over. Right. Obviously, yeah, it's yeah. Expect, right? You know, otherwise, you know, we're doing our job wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But also, like, you have, like, this amazing helmet. Can you yep. talk us through this? <laughs> if you can. It's quite, it's quite um, liberating being able to talk to, you know, media, I guess, without um, having the big Royal Air Force lines to take over your head, but I, I really didn't like that helmet. I'll be honest with you. There's good reason behind it, and I and I understand that. Um, personally, I it was very comfortable. That that was the great side of it. Very positives was extremely comfortable. Mm-hmm. And from from flying Jehenex before in the F-16, you certainly noticed the way that they worked very worked very hard on. Um, putting the weight in the right place because Johannes was very, very front heavy and you find yourself kind of nodding towards the end of a long flight or whatever, whereas the F-35 was very well balanced, so that was good. Um, 
certainly initially, and I'm sure that this has got better, there's big issues with making sure it was aligned. I mean, I, I can't, couldn't tell you the number of times I'd be flying around with a, with a horizon bar that wasn't on the horizon. And oh. you kind of just got used to, you know, accepted norms and, you know, what do they call it, the deviation, the um, normalization of deviance, right? Um, and you kind of got used to that it wasn't quite right. And personally, I thought that was incorrect, but it was very difficult to change. I'm sure nowadays they got the, the helmet talking to the jet a lot better and they got, you know, the real world um, being projected into the helmet a lot better. But certainly early on, it was it was painful. But um, you can see where they go. Don't get me wrong in that respect. It was just early on, it was it was not not the best thing in the world, certainly. As all things, yeah, yeah, it takes time. Yeah. But uh, it, so it was like um, the helmet, like, is it essential to the part of the aircraft? I mean, you know, the MK-10s, could you wear an MK-10 in the F-35? No, no, no absolutely okay. not. So the helmet is... is <laughs> Another, another reason that it's single point of failure, right? So, I mean, if you, I always, we always kind of joke that if, you know, a, an adversary country really wanted to go and destroy our F-35 fleet, they just need to go into the locker room and go and stamp on it. <laughs> um, which, which is, you know, is, is a joke, but it's kind of true as well, right? I mean, your helmet was specifically molded to your head. So you went in, had like a plastic bag put on your head, and then, it, then your head was laser scanned. Wow. Um, so they mapped out your the, the the shape of your head, and then they would um, CNC mill some kind of um, uh, liners to go inside a regular helmet to then make it fit your head. So if I picked up someone else's helmet, it would feel totally wrong. It wouldn't fit properly because that thing has to fit you like a glove because, of course, it's projecting your head-up display, which is normally attached to the aeroplane and is just, you know, reference to the aeroplane and is never going to change, whereas you're now projecting the head-up display onto someone's helmet. If that helmet moves around on someone's head, it's not going to work, you know. So wow. it did a lot of work on that. And like I say, as a, as a result, it was incredibly comfortable. I never had any problems with comfort in that thing at all. Um, but, but, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you if I walked out to the aeroplane and dropped my helmet on the floor and broke it, I'm walking back in. I'm not going to fly. <laughs> So, You'd be a big call for that, probably. Some, some people may have done that in the um, in the in the history of the force. I, I certainly know a couple of people that might have done that. But <laughs> we won't mention any names. But uh, um, so yeah, is it true that you can actually look under the aircraft? Is that you know with, with your helmet yeah, on? It is absolutely true. Assuming that all the cameras are working around the airplane, yeah. is absolutely true. It is also absolutely useless. Um, really? I, yeah, it's it's it's. That's maybe a little bit harsh. It, it is not something that you necessarily use. So the the the, the DAS, the um, distributed aperture system, was a whole set of cameras that are around the aeroplane, and it's basically designed to be looking in the infrared spectrum to see um, missile launches. Um, so really, it's designed to be a passive system that's sitting out there looking, and when it sees a missile launch, it'll shout at you and tell you, and it you know it does a lot more clever things than that. Um, but you can project it into the helmet. And it can be useful for, you know, seeing the ground at night if you were uh, in an environment where you had to kind of pick something up. It's kind of pseudo night vision goggles, but you know, not not the same because there is a night vision camera in the, in the house as well, so it's infrared spectrum. Um, but the whole concept of staring straight through the floor—I'll be honest with you—the the number of times I ever thought, "Oh, it'd be really good if I could look through the floor right now," would very, very, very few. Wow. I think it's a cool gimmick, and it's a nice—it's it's a great way of being able to. Uh, um, explain the ability of the aeroplane to sense all around it and project things into helmet, etc. It's a great ability to do that, but 
like I say, frankly, the the tactical use of it or the day-to-day use of it as a, as a pilot flying the airplane is pretty limited, I would, I would argue. Oh, well, okay. I, I didn't know that, uh, Hugh. But uh, let's talk about the side stick control because obviously you went from like a Harriet uh, centre stick yeah. and then obviously F-16. Which do you yeah. prefer? I much prefer the side stick. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the side stick, you just, I mean, if you naturally sit down in a chair, yeah, where do, you, where do your arms fall? You know, they fall along the armrests, right? They don't fall into your into the middle of your knees. That's you know, true. so um, I think just just for pure ergonomics, side stick is the place to go. And you look at um, you know civilian world, and you know certainly my my industry nowadays, um, and that's where everyone's going, just because it's ergonomically more clever. It also frees up a lot more real estate. You know, if you look at I mean, like I say, look at look at, um, at what Gulfstream, the company I work for now, are doing. They're moving side sticks out there, and guess what? You've got a table in front of you. You know, I mean, and that's taking it to an extreme. But actually, that bit of real estate is actually quite important. Um, but like I say, I think you know the the fact that when you just drop your hands down, they fall there makes sense. You know, and certainly in the F sixteen, and I'm sure F thirty five, certainly in the A model, they're pulling a lot of G. It, it's just a more relaxed position to be in and a more a better place for your your body to ergonomically be if you're going to then subject it to 9G. You know? Absolutely. And does the F-35, because I know the, the Typhoon has excess power, does the uh, F-35 have that? Because it's got, I think, about 40,000 pounds of thrust. That's yeah, quite a lot. It's not, it's not a Typhoon in the respect that it's not right. going to... Um, you know, have the agility up in the high 40,000 feet to, mm-hmm. to zip around like a typhoon does. But it's also not designed to do that, you know. So yeah. what what I'd say about F-35 without going into too much depth is that if you got it going fast, it was pretty good at staying fast. If you got on if you got on the slow side, it, it, you didn't really have the power to, to get back there. Um, and that's kind of similar to all aeroplanes, but there are a couple of aeroplanes out there, Raptor being a perfect example Typhoon to an extent, although I, I really don't know a whole lot about Typhoon, I don't profess to, but certainly having the just the raw power to just drag yourself out of a problem, I think is is you know it's a that's a that is something that every aeroplane wants and very few have, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, certainly F thirty five didn't have that. But if you operated it the way it was meant to be operated, it was it was just fine. And did you ever get a chance to uh, conduct DACT with the F thirty five against other? No types at a time. Uh, you know what we did? We did a lot of. Um, I wouldn't say DACT. So you know, I guess arguably, and I'm sure there's some doctrine and some some um, description somewhere. But I, I would argue the DACT is when you're actually in the fight. So you get you go from you know 60, 70, 80, 90 miles away to actually tied up, spinning around in circles. We we didn't do very much of that because certainly in my time on the F35, we only just towards the end got to the stage that the envelope was really big enough for us to go and do BFM, basic fighter maneuvers, and actually go and be able to spin around in circles and fight each other. Mm-hmm. So we never did that, but we did a lot of um, tactical intercepts and a lot of the long-range training against um, against the, you know, certainly a lot of Hornets, because of course I was, you know, we were essentially embedded with the Marines, so they had a lot of Hornets around. Uh, and then we do stuff against F-15s, F-16s, et cetera, as well. And, um, I mean, I think the guys use the term clubbing baby seals. Uh, and it, it, it's, it, I mean, it, it, it really was eye-opening how you go out there, you know, against a whole fleet of, you know, third, fourth-gen airplanes, 
and you get to the debrief and they've never even seen you. And, and, you know, and that's so, so that's you know it was really quite really quite amazing that you could go out there and be that invisible. You know, which is yeah, just kind absolutely. of. And we have, I haven't actually asked you this, but uh, what was your first time hovering uh, the aircraft and what was it like? Because it looks, apparently people, it's just a few buttons. Is that true? It's... Yeah, it's um, it's very, I, I guess I call that, you know, I always reference it back to the Harry, of course, right? So um, Harry was very, what I would call mandrolic. You know, you're, you're moving levers, you're moving the throttle to, to really control exactly where that lift um the, the the nozzles are going and you're reacting with your other hand because of course every time you move one thing you've got to move the other you know so it's all very very coupled and very very um you know intensive on the pilot whereas f-35 i mean you you press the button within a certain speed regime to say i want to go into what we'd call mode four which was um hovering uh, and then the great and incredible thing that the way that they mechanized that airplane was that um your left and your right hand still did the same thing, regardless of whether you're doing zero knots or whether you're doing 600 knots. Wow. If you want to go forward or faster, you push forward on the stick. Also on the throttle. If you want to go up, you pull back on the stick. You know, so it, nothing changed in the way you controlled the airplane all the way down through the speed regime, which was kind of cool because you basically just, you know, you put it at the right height with your right hand and then you just pull back on the, on the throttle with your left hand and it would slow down. And it's doing all the magic underneath. There's a billion moving parts and, you know, whatever. And you really don't have any knowledge or you really don't care about it, frankly, because you're just telling it you want to slow down and it's telling you it can. And at the point where it runs out of performance, it'll go, no, nope, you're, you're not getting any slower and it'll just stop. And it'll just drive you along at that speed, you know, if you were too heavy or, you know. So it's incredibly well-mechanized and a very, very safe in the respect that it would really look after you. Um, going back to your question, though, the first time I hovered, um, it was at Eglin, um, and it was it was a it was a bit of a kind of cloak and dagger run up to the initial attempt that we did to do Riyadh back in 2014, Sorry, uh, yeah, because um, Riyadh was on the cards, and so we needed a Brit guy to get qualified, and I got lucky to be that guy because the other two pilots that were there were going off to operational test out at Edwards, so they had other things on their mind. So I got lucky enough to do that, and it was kind of a bit of a cloak and dagger. Hey, We'll get some qualified just in case, and then you know the rest is history. But I'm sure we'll hit that at some point. But um, yeah, it was Eglin. It was a summer afternoon, and it did exactly what it said it was going to do. You know, and it was it was once again. Yeah, you, know, you do a whole load of simulators, and you pull the pull the stick, you push the throttle, and it kind of goes where it's supposed to go. You know, it's really quite impressive. Yeah, because you came, uh, I guess famous in the way like yeah, you were the first uh, was a british pilot to fly the f-35 over to the uk yeah that's right yeah so so it's a long story but 2014 like i kind of just said we 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 were going to we were, we were pretty much planned up ready to go we did about six months of planning we were going to come over we we're going to do um the air tattoo at, at fairford uh, react and then we we're going to do farnborough as well um, and farmers obviously more the business side of it, which is kind of more Lockheed Martin, whereas the React was more the military side of it, so more Royal Air Force Royal Navy. Um, but you know, we we planned it for like I say, we planned it for about six months. We were ready to go, and it's one of my lasting memories of flying that airplane was I went out on a 
we've been the, our engineers have been working really hard to get BK3, which is the airplane I did finally bring back in 2016. They've been working really hard to get that ready over a weekend, and I want to say it was like a Monday or a Tuesday. And the thing was just up and running, and they and they needed it shaking down. So I went off one morning and just took it up for a just a shakedown flight. And I remember going up to um, Duke Air Force. It's like a like a relief landing ground just up north of Eglin. And we'd go and do circuits there, so we're not annoying the locals at Eglin. And I was up there spinning around, and they came up on the radio and said, "Hey, Eglin's closed. Um, just so you're aware." And we expected to be open again in half an hour. So I was like, okay, that's fine. You know, I have plenty of gas. And then um, it, sure enough, it did reopen and I landed on the runway. We didn't always use, but sometimes we did if the wind was the right way or whatever. I didn't think much more of it. And then as I was taxiing back to the hangars, all the F-35s kind of lived in the same area. And there was a USAP F-35A on the, um, on the runway and the whole backside of it was just burnt out. Um, and that, at that point, I kind of thought, oh, man, this could be the end. And then actually I landed went into the office and went on a conference call uh, and it was literally the final conference call where one of the colonels was on the line and he was giving it the whole, hey guys, you've done a great job, all we've got to do now is execute, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I was sitting there thinking, we're not going anywhere because this thing has just blown up. And unless there's like a, unless there was a really obvious solution, those things took months, or certainly weeks, if not months to, you know, fathom out. And that was really the first big accident that F-35 had had. Um, so, so that meant that we didn't go that year. And then just because of the way that Farnborough and Paris overlap, it really just came, it, it reared its head again in 2016. Uh, and we did a very similar, um, we made a very similar plan, albeit it was much bigger as a result of potentially just having a few more years and, you know, the, 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 the program becoming a bit bigger and, you know, just more, more, hands in the pie if you like and so we ended up doing um it was about three three and a half weeks i think on the ground at, at, at fairford we flew over to fairford based ourselves out of there we did a few flyovers at various kind of strategic places around the uk um and then yeah we did the whole of Riyadh and then um farnborough as well and then at the end of farnborough we uh, we headed back so it was incredible it was a total career highlight um but um, certainly a lot of work went into it. And if you are, if you roll it back, maybe two and a half, three years worth of not any by any means my work, a lot of a, a lot of other people in the Marine Corps, Royal Air Force, Royal Navy just, you know, worked their socks off to get those aeroplanes there. And it was really cool to kind of show it off, definitely. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, I think I was there that air show. It was really cool. Actually, my girlfriend was there. Like It was the first air show she went to. So I was like, it was pretty cool. So, yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you for that, uh, Hugh. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So, what what do you think um, the F thirty five is going to bring to the RAF and the Royal Navy? Wow, that's a big question. Um, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, there's no doubt it's it's, it's the future, right? Um, yeah. Although, arguably, as soon as you design an aeroplane, it's it's the past. I guess uh, some people would argue that you've got to be designing the next one as soon as you finish designing the first one, right? Um, I think it's I think it's going to be a great capability for them. I think they're proving that now. I want to say they're out on the Queen Elizabeth at the moment doing some yeah. operational trials. Um, so I mean they're they're forging ahead, which is great. Um, I think that um, it will do a great job taking over from certainly Tornado in all of the roles that it did, um, and I'm obviously you know forging forward into all of the roles that we can do that they never even thought about. You know. Um, mm-hmm. 
people would argue that Tornado used to have some kind of seed, um, you know, ability, which, I mean, frankly, if they could, they could fire an alarm missile, that was about it, right? So, yeah. I mean, now you've got, a, you've got an airplane that can legitimately do that. Um, and it can legitimately go up against pretty much any surface threat that you want it to. So, you know, I think that is going to be amazing. I think there are going to be a lot of challenges, but that's, you know, that's kind of expected again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's, there's no doubt it's the future. It's just what comes next is the next question, of course, isn't it? You know? Of course, yeah. And yeah. as I've had a few comments from our viewers, as a Harrier man, do you think it will generally replace the Harrier? Um, it depends what you mean. <laughs> by airplanes. If you mean an airplane to 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 go fly off the ships and 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 do a great job, then absolutely. But if you want it to, really. <laughs> if you want it to, if you want it to, you know, take over the place in people's hearts that the Harrier had, then you've got to wait twenty years, right? I mean, maybe in twenty, thirty years' time, when they decide to retire it, people will be as upset as they were when we retired Harrier. I don't know. Um, personally. I don't know that it's going to be quite as iconic. Probably not. Because the Harrier was the first thing, first airplane to do that, really. And it was, you know, it really was an icon, right? But, mm. but like I say, you never know what in 30 years' time it might be the, might be the last man fighter. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm spitballing here, but it could be something that was really, really special, or it could just be another one of the F jets that, that we buy for 20, 30 years and then we buy the next one. Or, I don't know the Royal Air Force talking about, is it Tempest now? Or, you Tempest, know, they're, they're moving on to the next thing, which is great. Whether that'll have a person in it, yeah, I don't know. You know, there's there's a lot to go down the road, but I think it, um, I don't think it'll, I don't think it will replace what people loved about the Harrier, but I think it'll do a damn good job doing the, mesh, the mission, if you like. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And uh, one more question from our viewers here. Um, someone said, uh, was or is the afterburner instant is it like so once you engage the afterburner is it instant um no no afterburner is instant so the afterburner is in certain stages and it'll and it won't it doesn't just suddenly throw you know ten thousand gallons of fuel in the back and light it off i mean you don't get that like it's not just like a rocket yeah but it's pretty damn quick i mean i couldn't tell you the the, 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 the seconds or whatever, but it's 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 a matter of very few seconds from pushing the throttle all the way up to the point where that thing's really cooking and actually giving you as much um, thrust as it as it should be. And that obviously depends on the altitude as well. If you're way up high, you don't get as much kick out of it. It, it schedules itself back because otherwise it'll just surge the engine because it's not yeah. as much effort going through the engine. So mm-hmm. up top, up high, you'll probably get you get almost nothing. Was down low, you get a real kick in the pants. But the the, the the short answer is no. The long answer is it's not very long. Yeah. So Hugh, how many hours did you get on F thirty five? I want to say I was in the same region as the, as the F sixteen, five to six hundred. I certainly hit five hundred. I don't think lucky I got. To... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, better be lucky for good, right? <laughs> and uh, before I'm gonna, uh, uh, there's a few personal questions, but I'm gonna ask you this because I was watching it the other day. Carol Vordemer mentioned her bum in that thing. So talk about that. What was your what was all that about? <laughs> so um, I don't know if I'm allowed to tell the backstory to this. I'm sure I am. So so as Michael, Michael McIntyre was doing that whole. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what the actual skit was called, but basically he'd take a celebrity's phone and he would text everybody with it. Right. Yeah. So um, 
it was about three, four, and this is where I'm going to spoil everything now, um, but anyway, I'm going to do it. About three or four months before the actual show aired, yeah. um, she sent a text out to everyone. I met Carol when she interviewed me back in 2016 um, for the React thing because she was in the back of the Hercules when we were flying around on one of the uh, the training missions. Yeah. And um, we kind of stayed in touch. And she and she sent her, I think it was a group text out to pretty much her phone saying, hey, Michael McIntyre's going to have hold of a phone at some point in the near future, you know, just so you know, kind of thing. And, you know, kind of a little bit of a, of a warning shot, if you like. And then, and then I was actually, um, I was on vacation with my wife, um, and the, you know this, these texts start coming through, and I was like, "Ah, oh, here we go." And actually, Caroline and I, my wife, and we sat down and we kind of concocted the reply, and we were having a great time. It was hilarious, you know. But you know, like I say, it was months before the actual show, mm-hmm. and then of course, you know, we kind of, it, it goes quiet, and um, and then we get the, the get the email through a little bit later saying, "Oh, you know, hey, we'd like you to sign a release," and blah blah. And they do a great job, and you know, I guess I've never thought about it before, but of course, you couldn't. You couldn't actually do that live. I mean, if you yeah. tried to do that live, then someone says something they didn't mean to say, then you just—I oh, mean—that's just a legal, legal minefield, you know. So it's all done prior, um, and uh, they do a great job of editing it to make it seem like it is. And he's, you know, he's a comedy genius, of course. You know, the guy's hilarious, and he did a really good job of making it sound like he's replying to me. Um, which I don't know if it was him in the first place or one of his staffers or you know whatever. It doesn't matter. They did a great job of making it sound funny, but. What was kind of funny from my side of the, of the house was as this was happening live on TV, like months later, and I'd forgotten about it. I have all these buddies of mine texting me going, hey, you know, you're, you know, this is live on TV, right? And I think they're worried that I'm now flirting with Carol yeah, yeah, and yeah. my wife might see, you know, what, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, I know. Yeah. It's not happening now. It's all done, you know. So it's, it's kind of kind of amusing like that. And, you know, all in, all in good jest, of course. But, yeah, quite a funny, quite a funny moment, certainly. Yeah, it was a great yeah, moment. Was- yeah, because I I remember like watching that, and I was like, I was like, I know that guy who's the the React guy in the F thirty five. So <laughs> yeah, it was great. But uh, Hugh, we have a few personal questions. If you are happy to answer them, so um, yeah. let's see. Uh, do you have any hobbies apart from aviation? Man, I've got two children, so hobbies kind of go out the window. At that point. Yeah. I do enjoy playing golf. Um, I like getting out in the water. I live, I'm still living out in South Carolina. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, I mean, it's, it's 25, 30 degrees out here at the moment, even, even at the end of October. So we're blessed with the weather. So I do like getting out on the, on the boat, like getting out in the water. I enjoy going running. I enjoy playing golf, but those are all tempered by two small people who take up all your time, I guess. So. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so fit this, this is going to be a tough one. Favorite aircraft you have flown? Favorite aircraft I've ever flown. Oh, this is a tough one. You know what? I um, I do always go back to the F-16, and I don't know if it was just because it was such a formative time in my career or whether it was just because, you know, growing up as a young Air Force officer, you're kind of always looking to the cool pointy jets around the world, and I always thought the F-16 was one of those, but I, I struggle to get away from that one when people ask me that question. And that one, the airplane that I flew, the F-16 CJ, was just... It was so well integrated, so well resourced, and it was just such a tactically cool place to be at the time that I think I'd struggle to get away from that one, to be honest. So this is, again, a difficult question. One aircraft you wish you could have flown? One aircraft I wish I could have flown? Oh, can I have two? 
You can have two. I'll give you that. Oh, I want three now. Oh, three now. Oh. Bloody hell, you're pushing your luck. <laughs> well, okay, so let's let's break it up. So civilian world, Concord, no doubt. Yep. 100%. That's easy. Military world, it'd be between Raptor and F-15. I kind of always, every time we flew into, um, every time I was over in Afghanistan and the F-15s would check in, we we would check in with, you know, two bombs and two pets of rockets. The F-15 would check in and it would, like the radio would be busy for like 20 minutes while they told them all their ordnance. And I always just thought that was really cool because that thing could just carry so much. So kind of always fancy that. And it's so damn big. I mean, the thing is monstrous when you get is up Is this there. the E-model, uh, Strike Eagle? That, those were E-models, but, you know, E or C, I mean, they're similar size aeroplane in that respect. So always kind of fancy flying that just because the thing was so big. Uh, and then, you know, Raptor just has such an incredible, you know, um, uh, you know, thrust away and all that kind of stuff. I always kind of fancy how they go in that thing as well. Yeah, I think God has said that in his interview. Um, he said, uh, yeah, he had a bit of a, what was it, a, a romance when he was over there with the Raptor and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's difficult like not to, right? And I think because, and certainly you see it from the inside of F-35 as well, because there's such a secrecy around it as well. Yeah. That, you, know, you, don't, you don't get to see very much about it. And when you do, it's kind of eye-opening. I mean, you go to some of these red flags and, you know, all those kind of things, and they, they bring you into the club a little bit. And I, I mean, I mean a little bit. And suddenly you're like, wow, that's really cool. And so I think, you know, when you see a little bit of that, you're like, oh, I kind of want more of it, you know. Um, but, yeah, I think that would be, I think to have just, to go and have a go in that thing and take it into a fight. Because I guess Raptor's kind of where, Raptor, when I was on F-16, is kind of where F-16 was, mm-hmm. you know, that it's just very well integrated, very well, you know, mature, all that kind of stuff, which F-35 will be, and I'm sure in the two years that I haven't flown it now, it's way better than it was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to see one of those aeroplanes almost not at the end of its life, but in the middle of its life and its maturity, I think would be really quite impressive. And I think that would definitely be one that would be very impressive. So, yeah. Hugh, what are you currently up to at the, at the moment? I am. Um, I retired uh, late last year, or middle of last year, I guess. And I, um, I've actually got a job. I didn't even move. I, I've got a job down the road here in uh, Savannah, Georgia, flying for Gulfstream Aerospace. Um, nice. So they're yeah business jet manufacturer um, and uh, I got lucky enough to get in with those guys as I left and I am flying um, three different types with them now um, we do a bit of everything from air shows trade shows to to demonstration uh, for for potential customers um, uh, and and then obviously there's other other areas within the company that do test flying and you know we just in fact last night we just announced a new aeroplane. Um, that's going to come out in the next couple of years. So I'm sure there'll be some excitement around that at work today as well. So an exciting place to be, certainly. So for our viewers that don't know, Gulfstream are like a kind of business jet type thing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the the, the famous side of it would be the, the, the G6, you know, the, yeah. the, the Gulfstream G650, the, you know, and there we do everything from, um, you know, everything from small, I wouldn't say small, from, but we call it... Um, Mid, mid, mid-size, mid so, um, you know, 10-person type business jets all the way up to the big super monsters that are going to fly seven, 8,000 miles all around the world um, and, you know, and, and move people around in incredible luxury. So it's a it's definitely an exciting place to be. It's kind of, I guess it's kind of the tip of the business jet sphere where I was lucky enough to be at the tip of the of the, the fighter sphere when I was in the, in the military. So it's kind of a nice fit for me in the respect that it's all, it's still exciting and it's pushing forward and it's not just, you know, 
resting on its laurels. And it's an you know, incredible company to be part of, certainly. Absolutely. And a very enviable career, that's for sure. But uh, Hugh, can we find you online anywhere? On Twitter or Facebook or anything like that? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, certainly. Um, I have a kind of more public side on Twitter, definitely. My, my Facebook side is my, is my more private side, I guess. But um, yeah, I'm out there on Twitter. I think you've got the, you've got the handle there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, Hugh, well, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you and thank you very much for giving up uh, a bit of your time to talk about your flying career and the F-35. So thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome.